To learn more about Seminars at Steamboat or to view the video recording of this seminar, please visit seminarsatsteamboat.org. Good evening and welcome as we conclude the 21st season of Seminars at Steamboat. And as you probably know, I'm Walt Ebert. I'm the chair of Seminars. And we're pleased to be able to present this evening the fifth of five uh, seminars this year that have ranged uh, on topics from emergency uh, response to emerging technologies to the environment, social justice, and international affairs. Uh, the seminars board has uh, really strived to present seminars that are factual, informative, nonpartisan, and timely, shedding light on pressing public policy issues. We value your presence here today as it reflects your commitment to staying informed. The seminar's board members want to express our deep gratitude to all the sponsors and all the volunteers who've made this series possible. It's your donations that enable us to present these presentations year after year and all at no cost of admission. This evening, we especially want to recognize our seminar sponsors, Susan and Alan Kirkpatrick. And Emily and Tony Seaver are our supporting sponsors. Thank you. Uh, now for more serious stuff, I'd like to introduce this evening's uh, seminar board member, Alan Kirkpatrick, who will introduce the speaker. Thank you so much. Well, uh, good afternoon. I, I think I see a, a lot of, of um, long sleeve shirts here. And uh, today's speaker will be talking about climate change in just, just a few minutes. Craig uh, uh, Hugate is a national leader in the emergency management area. He will be speaking on disaster preparation and management in the face of a changing climate. Craig was the administrator from 2009 to 2017 of the Federal Emergency Management Agency, which we know as FEMA, appointed by President Obama. In 2010, he oversaw a record 81 disaster declarations and then exceeded that record in 2011 with 87 disaster declarations, including floods, hurricanes, tornadoes, and wildfires. Craig is known for his Waffle House Index. What, what is that? He determines the level of attention a disaster area requires is based on whether the local Waffle House is open <laughs> at the time emergency services arrive. Craig told the New York Times that Waffle Houses have a very simple operational philosophy. Get open. His theory is, is that if a Waffle House is open, keep driving. If it's damaged but serving a limited menu, then the community does need some help. If it's closed, then it means the situation is really dire and it needs the most attention. Craig and his family live in Gainesville, Florida. Let's extend a warm steamboat welcome to, uh, to Craig. Okay. 
Well, the Waffle House Index tends to follow me everywhere. Um, wasn't going to talk about it, but since they broached the subject, um, I've been in government all my adult life. Uh, when I got out of the administration, I went into the private sector, and basically I kept doing what I was doing in government, which was talking. And, um, but I actually started out with an honest job. At one point, I was a firefighter and a paramedic. And something I learned, not easily, but I learned there's a big difference between process and outcomes. And when you're in bureaucracies, and, and people tend to look at bureaucracies as bad, and I'm like, no, they're just a product of an environment that has little tolerance for risk, making mistakes, and being very frugal and economical with the available funds. So they tend to build systems that can repeat over a wide range of subjects, but they don't deal a lot with outliers. And when something goes wrong in bureaucracies, the thing people want to go do is fix the process. And what I learned as a paramedic was I could start the IVs, I could administer the drugs, I could put in the endotracheal tube, I could do all that stuff. That's process. Outcome is I got you to the emergency room and you were a viable patient for the surgeon. So if you're a trauma patient and you're in a car crash, that process is going to kill you because it will not stop the bleeding. It takes hot lights and cold steel, as one of my trauma surgeons who was uh, our, our advisor told us. And so what would be something you would do for cardiac arrest, we were taught to do the same thing for the trauma patient, the person in a car crash who didn't have a pulse. Obviously, their heart's not beating. We must give drugs. We must defibrillate. We must do all these things. They were dying because we weren't paying attention to the outcome. The outcome was time. Time is the most precious commodity in trauma. We've seen this in our conflicts in the war on terrorism, Afghanistan, Iraq, that in military injuries, the number one factor in survivability is time. The quicker you stop the blood loss and get them to the surgeons, the better the outcome. We have survivability rates now from combat that we'd never seen even in Vietnam because we stripped away all the process and got down to the core thing. If you bleed to death or you go into irreversible shock, you didn't make it. When I came up, we stopped using tourniquets because it was bad for the limbs. It caused nerve damage. Somebody said, nerve damage or death? So that's how I think. Outcomes versus process. So here comes the Waffle House Index. The Waffle House Index wasn't something we sat down and whiteboarded and got a discussion group and did focus and all the stuff and hire a couple of consultants. And it was an observation. One of the things that I found when I became the director of Florida Division of Emergency Management, again, this is nonpartisan, so I worked for Governor Jeb Bush, a Republican, was when a disaster would strike a community, the first things you would do is send out teams to assess how bad it was. And the process was local government is impacted, and this is our a model of emergency management in the country. The model is local governments get hit, they handle house fires, small brush fires, the occasional flood tornadoes, and they don't really need outside assistance. But if they need outside assistance, they're gonna to go to the state. And states being states, probably the Steamboat Springs officials will tell you when they say they need help from the state, the state's going, okay, we're gonna send somebody down to check it out to see if you really need it. And the same thing at the federal level. 
It turned out it was taking us about three days to go in and do these assessments to determine how bad something was. And if all we were doing was what I call a recovery exercise of writing checks for damages that had occurred versus responding, three days was adequate. It didn't change the outcome. You're not going to rebuild a school in three days. So if it takes me three days or three weeks. But if I'm in a response phase where I have to make decisions about launching very expensive response capabilities outside of the community, urban search and rescue teams, disaster medical assistance teams, Department of Defense assets, governor calling up the National Guard. All these things are very expensive. And oh, by the way, there is no checkbook that says FEMA. It says U.S. taxpayer. And remember, bureaucracies hate waste. They hate making mistakes and they hate taking risk. So before they spend your billions, and that's the number billions in some of these responses, not rebuilding, just in the response, they want to make sure it's really needed. That's process. Because if I'm going in to determine how bad something is, have I done anything to change the outcome yet? I've just figured out it's bad, right? It took me three days to figure that out. You're sitting there, if you are alive, probably not in your home, maybe in a shelter if you're lucky. Three days is a long time for somebody to be trying to figure out how bad something is before they decide they're going to help you. So I was fortunate. I worked for some really incredible people. That or <laughs> they were not all together there, I think, sometimes, because they told me, well, do what you think you need to do. And I said, I'm getting rid of assessments. I'm not doing any more assessments. Unless it's a recovery exercise, I'm not waiting. If somebody says they need help, I'm coming. In fact, I'm coming before they ask for it. And the reason was a hurricane, we track on a map. We see it. It makes landfall. Uh, especially the bigger hurricanes, I was like, why do we have to go do an assessment? Well, we don't know how bad it is. It's a hurricane. It just hit. Why don't we assume it's bad and adjust? Because remember, as I learned as a paramedic, you never get time back. Time's your most precious commodity. So if I could cut three days off the decision to get to the tipping point to go, start moving stuff, because we're not that fast and nimble, then ideally, I can start changing outcomes. Because you hear this all the time. People are responding to a disaster. I'm like, and what does that mean? Is it secure? Do you have communications? Have you extracted the people that are trapped? Are you treating the injured? Do you have a basic level of medical care? Are you getting enough commodities in there to keep people alive? Are you providing basic shelters? Those are outcomes. Responding says, I'm still moving. So here's where Waffle House comes in. Anybody here ever drive in the south on the interstate system? What's in there? Like 90% of the interstate exchanges in the South, a Waffle House. And so I would send these teams out, and hurricanes are like wide area destructive uh, events. They're not like nice and concentrated like tornadoes. So when you're driving into an area, and I would tell our teams, we're not waiting for the sun to come up. We're not waiting for the rain to stop. All I'm waiting for is the tropical force winds to get down low enough where it's not likely to blow people off the road and we're going. 
That may be at 2 a.m. in the morning. It may be 12 noon. Who knows? But we're going as soon as the weather permits. And we would work with the National Weather Service. We had meteorologists. And their whole job is, when does my window open to start responding? So we'd start driving. And you'd see damage. Billboards down, trees down. People go, are we there yet? You know, the kid's in the back seat. No, we're not there yet. Why? Because the Waffle House is still open and it's had a full menu. It's green. And people go, well, what does that mean? Think about it. A Waffle House open with a full menu means they haven't lost power. They got water pressure. Their people can get to work and they're open. None of that means there's not damages, but it certainly means I'm not in an area where I'm likely to be doing search and rescue operations. Just keep going. Okay, we get there. It's open, but it's got a limited menu. What does that mean? Waffle House is 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The joke is they forgot where the keys are because they never close. They know where the keys are. They just don't use them very often. But if you get there and it's a limited menu, it's bad. It's not catastrophic. It's bad because they've lost power. If they have any inkling that they've lost their temperatures in the coolers and the freezer, they chunk it. So they have a push package that they will ship from their warehouses of fresh stuff to get open. If they lose water pressure and they're under a boiled water order, they get rid of all their ice, all their soda fountain, everything, go to canned drinks, plastic goods. Oh, and by the way, they still making coffee. Unlike Starbucks, and there's a story about Starbucks in this somewhere. <laughs> so in this area, I've got a lot of infrastructure impacts. But the store is open, people can get to work, there may be a lot of damages, but I'm not in the area yet where I probably need those search and rescue teams. But if you get there and the Waffle House is closed because of the disaster, knowing all of the factors they go through to get open, that's where you're on the edge of bad destruction. Go to work. Okay, it's a good rule of thumb. And then here comes Joplin. Joplin got hit by, on the Fijia scale, an F5, one of the most powerful tornadoes that you can have. And it is, people say, what's the worst thing you ever saw? And I said, well, it's kind of a mix between the earthquake in Haiti and Joplin. But I'll stick with Joplin because it was the classic, everyone says, it looked like a bomb went off. Bombs aren't that surgical. This, this tornado was so powerful that the hospital in Joplin was actually destroyed. It twisted the steel frame. So that's pretty bad. And of course, there's deaths, it's bad. Usually, if the FEMA administrator gets sent to a disaster area, it's not because things are going well. So I got sent to that disaster. And I'm on the ground basically that next morning. And um, it's a long day. FEMA administrator, you know, you don't get to do the fun stuff. You don't get to actually go out there and dig people out of the rubble. You get to go talk to the press. So I'm doing serial interviews. I'm meeting with the governor. I'm meeting with the mayor. I'm meeting with all these other stuff. I'm getting pinged by Homeland Security in the White House. There's all kinds of crazy stuff going on. We're finally getting to a, a point where we're going back to our hotel room. And it's been a long day. And we're driving out of this area. Remember, hurricanes are widespread. Tornadoes are like surgical. Literally, you'd be going down the street, and this block is gone. This block, the roofs are messed up. This block, there's no damage. So we're driving out of the area. There's a Starbucks. And it's full of cars. I pull it, I need a coffee. I need a vente, you know, triple shot. 
because I still got calls going on. We pull in, we get there, we go up to the door, it's closed. Why are all these people parked outside of it? Well, that tornado tore up so many water lines, they lost pressure in the city and were under a boiled water order. Starbucks plums their coffee makers. You lose water pressure, you go under boiled water, Starbucks is closed. Why are all the cars there? They didn't turn off their Wi-Fi. <laughs> Just a handy survival tip. If there's power but they're closed, they may still have left the Wi-Fi on. Right down the street from there where we were actually staying, there was a Waffle House. I said, pull in there, they'll have coffee. He said, well, the Starbucks didn't have coffee. I said, trust me, just pull in there. Again, I had a lot of folks that worked for me that weren't necessarily, uh, had been to a lot of disasters. So they, it was always an education for them. We go in there and sure enough, they got coffee. You know how you make coffee in a Waffle House under a boiled water order? You pour a bottle of water in the coffee maker. It ain't that hard. And so that's the story of the Waffle House. It's like taking a pulse. It doesn't tell me why you don't have a heartbeat. It just tells me you don't have one, which is bad, right? Or it tells me you got one, but it doesn't tell me what all is going on. But I know you're not that critical compared to other things. It's a sign. And sometimes I think in my world, we spend so much time doing our process to get all these answers, we forget. Like Yoga Berra says, you can learn a lot just by looking. <laughs> Yet there are people that quite honestly, if it's not an official report, by drone capture, satellite images in the EOC Emergency Operations Center up on the big screens. Uh, it's not true. And I'm like, did you actually go out there and talk to anybody yet? Oh, no, we're in the EOC. We're, still, we're responding. I'm like, there's nobody in your EOC that needs your help. So I like to go out and see stuff. So the talk was disasters and climate change, which I told Walt and others, I'm like, that's a very depressing subject. Why? Well, we did a bunch of other interesting stuff. We thought it would be a good way to end our series. Okay. <laughs> All right. I'm, I'm, I'm cool with that, man. That's what I talk about. That's what I know. So, okay. I'm, I'm flattered. You want to learn about this stuff. Okay. I remember our disaster model is based upon lowest level of government response first and manages it. And if it exceeds that, you go to the next level and next level. The other thing our model is based upon is insurance. People think that FEMA, one, is a response agency or not. Two, that somewhere there's this pot of money that's set aside that we use in disasters, um, and it's used for everything. It's not. Congress, and actually, anybody here remember Tom Ridge? Secretary of Homeland Security, blame Tom. <laughs> when, when Secretary Ridge was a member of Congress from, from Pennsylvania, they were getting a lot of floods. And at that time, there weren't a lot of consistency across all the federal programs. So he actually drafted and wrote the Stafford Act. He named it after Stafford because he knew that if he named it after the chair of the committee, it was more likely to get his attention uh, than to get shelved and postponed. So the Stafford Act is the federal law that it doesn't authorize FEMA, but it authorizes the disaster assistance programs. And there's this, we love acronyms. Uh, FEMA's an acronym itself, although 
Uh, I remember when Governor Bush told us we had to quit using acronyms, and we pointed out, sir, your name is an acronym. <laughs> Jeb is not your name. It's the acronym of your initials. So he said, all right, you and the National Guard can use acronyms because I don't think you can say a, a single sentence without an acronym. Everybody else got to quit using So we have this thing called the Disaster Relief Fund, or what shorthand is the DRF. It is the funding that Congress appropriates on an annualized basis, your money, tax dollars, that's set aside for payment in disasters. What does it pay for? Well, this is where it gets real murky because people tend to think when a disaster happens and the president declares the disaster, they're going to be made whole. Somebody's going to take care of them. That's not what Tom Ridge developed. What Tom Ridge focused on was his feeling was the majority, and this is back in the 70s and 80s when this was being developed, the majority of people had homeowners insurance, and that covered risk and peril. Most government insured their buildings. So the, the impact to the federal treasury would be primarily on response cost, and to avoid that now paying for everything, the key provision was unbudgeted and uninsured losses. That's a fairly simple statement. Unbudgeted, uninsured losses. What does that mean? Well, let's take Singapore Springs Fire Department. Nice station down the road here. You get a disaster, it reaches the level where the governor asks the president, and only the governor can request from the president to declare a disaster, and only the president can make that determination, not the FEMA administrator. We just recommend, this is a presidential decision. If the president concurs with the governor saying, this has exceeded the capabilities of the state of Colorado, it turns on a disaster declaration. There's several flavor stuff. But the basic premise is uninsured losses, unbudgeted expenses. So. That fire station down there, I would assume that's probably a paid fire department. They're budgeted for their staff. So just because they got declared, those salaries don't get reimbursed by you, the federal taxpayer. But their overtime would be. The stuff that they were already going to do, even though they're doing it in a disaster, that's not reimbursable. That's budgeted. But everything above that is. But what really drives up the cost of these responses is the uninsured losses. And what we've seen, starting back in the 60s, various hazards, and this is going to tie into the climate piece, various hazards started becoming uninsurable. Back in the 60s, it was flooding. The insurance industry had several big floods. They realized that their exposure was too great. And what the insurance industry had to do was because they didn't have the data, they didn't understand the risk, and the one thing you, you really want to get the reinsurance people in the insurance industry going is unknown risk. Because if they know the risk, they can price it. But they couldn't price it. They didn't know. They, 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 this was off the scale. So they went to Congress and said, we're giving up. We're no longer going to insure flood. And the federal government created the National Flood Insurance Program. Originally housed in HUD, it was actually created before FEMA existed. FEMA was created by executive order by President Carter in 1979, April 1st. Think about it, folks. <laughs> Just a moment there. When do they? He could have done April 2nd, right? <laughs> so that was the first one. Then, after several notable earthquakes in California, 
the industry started walking away from earthquake. And California was first forced to create the California Earthquake Authority. And again, it doesn't cover a lot. It has very high deductibles. It's basically designed in California, and the premiums are very expensive, to at least protect your ability to service your mortgage debt, but not necessarily get away scot-free. But FEMA, directed by Congress, looked at those costs and said, hey, if you didn't have flood insurance, you didn't have insurance. If you had a high deductible on your earthquake, that's also eligible. And then we start seeing hurricane seasons. First hurricane to really disrupt the insurance market was Hurricane Andrew, 1992. Florida had its biggest boom and growth from the late 60s through the early 90s. And we basically doubled since then. But in that time frame, we had very little hurricanes. The insurance markets were underpricing risk because what's more valuable to them, your homeowner's policy or car insurance? They made more money off your homeowners or more money off of car insurance and life insurance. That's why they like to bundle stuff. And they actually were writing homeowner's policies below risk to get your auto and life insurance. And then Andrew hit and bankrupted and almost took out main lines. These are your parent big companies. So disrupted the market that Florida ended up creating a reinsurance fund itself, the Florida Catastrophic Fund, and after several more hurricanes, created the insurance company of last resort. Normally, when you say last resort, that was reserved for people that had DUIs and nobody would insure. Think about it. We're now having to create a company because nobody will insure your home. It's called Citizens. It's a nice name. It's Inoculus. It's the largest insurance company in Florida. Um, and it's an interesting way they fund that one. If it goes bankrupt, because it can't go bankrupt, it has bonding authority. You know what they bond? Every insurance policy in the state of Florida. After the 2004 hurricane season, we got hit by four hurricanes. It tripped that clause. On my insurance bill, even though I had no hurricane damages, I had a bill for four hurricanes listed out. Charlie... Francis, Ivan, Gene. Of course, it wasn't a lot of money, but it was about 10 bucks a month on my policy that was going towards past hurricanes. And then we kind of got almost back to normal. And then Katrina happened. And Katrina broke the system because the tendency for government is to build just enough and not much more because it costs a lot of money to have that capacity sitting around ready to go just in case. And in Katrina's case, it was a failure at all levels. Uh, they like to single out people. They like to single out the FEMA administrator. I worked with him in 2004. Eh. Uh, the mayor, federal prison right now. Uh, <laughs> the governor has passed away from cancer. The Failure was at all levels. But probably the most telling thing was everybody thought their systems would scale up. That when it got worse, we would do what we were always doing and pedal faster. Problem is you can only pedal a bat bike so fast. And so Katrina broke the system. We did a lot of reforms. We came back. But the insurance industry was sitting there and was going, this does not look good. And there was a big battle 
between what was covered by flood insurance and what was covered by wind policies because a flood insurance policy separate. And again, I'm going to tell you right now, even if you're on top of the mountain, your homeowner's policy covers no damage to the rising water. It is the fastest growing, largest uninsured risk in our nation that you as taxpayers are underwriting. Because remember, FEMA doesn't pay if you got insurance. Well, you paid out a billion dollars in Superstorm Sandy. You paid out another billion dollars in the flooding that occurred in Baton Rouge 2015. You paid out another billion in Hurricane Ida in Florida. You paid out billions from Harvey in Houston because people flood didn't have flood insurance. And oh, they didn't need flood insurance. They didn't live in a flood zone. It's like, eh, that's a big mistake. That's a special flood risk area. It's pricing. It's an insurance rate map. If you have damage to the rising water, your policy won't cover it. Your mortgage and your cost are not covered. And if you got a FEMA declaration, you'll max out about $36,000. Average cost for one inch of water in a home is about, when I was there, it was around, uh, I think we were saying 28,000 an inch. I figure it's closer to 30 to 35, if you can get materials and workers. So we can start getting these wildfires. When I talked to the insurance industry about wildfires, they told me, we got that. It, you know, we understand the seasons, we price the risk, we're good. Yeah, we'll have a bad year, but by and large, we understand fire risk. It has a season, and there's only a couple of states where we see a lot of these losses. 2016, Napa fires. 2017, Paradise. 2018, 2019. Uh, my favorite call, a good friend, General Jacoby, was commander of NORTHCOM in Colorado Springs, calls me up one day. Craig, there's fires coming down the mountains. The Air Force Academy is threatened. I need to start moving aircraft to fight the fire. And I'm like, sir, it's not your fire. It's the, Cal it's the Colorado Forestry Division's fire. Well, it's going to burn up the Air Force Academy. Sir, so last time I checked, your runways are fine. Um, but people in Colorado were like, we've never seen fires like that. The, it was off the charts. And now you've got states like Arizona, Colorado, Washington State, Oregon, and California has already been hit where insurers are saying, uh, we may not be renewing your policy. We're certainly not writing new policies. And you're going to have to figure out how to cover that. Why? What's changed in the last 20 years that I've been in? I've been in the business close to 40 years. What's changed? Well, we got more people living in hazardous areas. That explains part of it. We build bigger houses. We like quartz or whatever the latest uh, home improvement thing is for our, our countertops. Um, our fixtures and bathrooms and everything else have gone up. Okay, that explains part of it. But it's the frequency and severity of weather, extreme weather, that's changed. And it's changed noticeably. I got in the career, we weren't talking about climate change. Midway through our career, we were talking about climate change. That's for our grandchildren. Remember the hockey stick? It was going to do this and then go like that. And the oil companies funded a lot of research that said, that will never happen. That's a fallacy. Al Gore's been doing too much inhaling. The inconvenient truth is just to panic you. There's no need to destroy our economy. Keep driving the bigger SUVs. Why do we have SUVs? Because our Congress passed exemptions to the fuel 
gas standards for cars and exempted trucks because they're commercial. Why do you think when you go on the lots, you see all the SUVs? They don't have to comply with the mileage requirements. They're considered light trucks. So we basically conned ourselves into thinking, all is well. Kevin Bacon from Animal House could probably be the poster child of what was going on in the 90s and 2000s. All is well. Don't panic. Certainly don't change doing what you've been doing. Keep driving. And we'll figure this out because we got time. And the hockey stick didn't materialize. And so it gave a lot of credence to the fact, eh, ain't that bad. 2010 assessment came out. It basically toned down the severity of what was happening. It was still saying it was occurring. They said it was scientifically based. It's global warming. Climate change is a nice way to talk about it, but we're dumping a lot more energy in the atmosphere because we're trapping heat. And energy in the atmosphere means weather is going to get worse, not better. And they also started identifying in 2010 the specific weather phenomenon. Sea level rise was used as the poster child of climate change. Not something you're worried about here. And when you're talking inches, quite honestly, I was talking about feet of water and storm surge from hurricanes. So a couple inches of water was like, eh. But when 2010 said the two things that we are seeing that are measurable in the data was extreme temperature and extreme rainfall. That there was not the ability to go back and going, these were isolated extreme events. There was now enough data to say there's patterns. There wasn't any data saying we were getting more hurricanes. In fact, there's still no data saying we're getting more hurricanes. But what we are seeing with hurricanes are they're getting wetter, they're intensifying and staying at high levels longer. And the reason for that is hurricanes are heat engines. They live off of hot water. And normally during the summertime, the surface heats, the bottoms are cool. So if a hurricane's up there churning, that water's upwelling. It cools off. Storms weaken. Do you, do you guys hear about the uh, sauna we're running down in the Florida Keys? 100 degree water. It's cooler out of the water. You get down to Sanibel Island, it's actually cooler to stand on the beach than to be in the water. That's not something we've dealt with before. But as we've seen these increases, we're seeing more extreme weather events. The one that's costing us and getting a lot of attention because it's the one that we don't have the good model for is flooding. It's the least insured risk. Again, how many people here have flood insurance? Yeah, that's about typical. The rest of you are hoping it doesn't flood because financially, that's all you got. You're hoping it doesn't flood because nobody's going to bail you out. And you're going, I've lived here all my life. It's never flooded. You know how many places I've been to, they told me that? In fact, the Denver Post told me that in 2009. Ah, we're the Post. It's Denver. We don't have disasters. Who cares about preparedness? We're good. We don't have big disasters. That was in 2009. I really had to go back to the op board and go, hey, we like to go over this and like rewind the last decade and go, did your statements hold up? So climate's changing. It has already changed. Don't believe we got time. We still need to work on the emissions because it's getting worse. And it's getting worse faster than people thought it could. Although there's a lot of science that are saying we lowballed our figures 
because we were so concerned what we were seeing was so extreme that after the hockey stick, nobody would believe us and we'd lose credibility. But my favorite headline, and again, I'll admit the Washington Post tends to be more biased to the inside the beltway conversations in DC, but the headline still was pretty remarkable. Five 1,000 year flood events in five weeks. When you go back and you look at data, and we can thank President Grant for this, well, after Civil War, he realized how important weather was. He had the Army Signal Corps begin establishing the Weather Bureau. So we've got weather data for most of the country going back to the 1870s. And you can't find that anywhere. It doesn't exist. People say, well, when did it exist? Before the dinosaurs. Last time I checked, we didn't build our infrastructure for the dinosaurs. We built it for the last 100 years of relatively stable weather. So we got a response system and a format of responding to disasters based upon our past history. We have bureaucracy that sometimes focuses too much on process and not outcomes that are trying to incrementally adjust to something that is not incrementally changing. We use an insurance model as the basis of transferring risk from you, the homeowner and business owner, to investors. That's breaking down. So risk is like energy. It doesn't go away. It just gets transferred. So it's getting transferred to you as the taxpayer. And the frequency and severity of events is increasing. Now, floods right now is one of our most costly disasters. And it's very much the fingerprints of climate are on it. But our deadliest disaster is not flooding. Do you know what the deadliest phenomenon from global warming is? It's heat. Heat will kill more people than all of our other disasters combined. And it's the one that we have the least time to adjust to because it's changing so fast. And because we've urbanized and built communities around stable weather for decades, we're not adjusting. I mean, first time I came to Denver, I was, I was like, I was going to a National Fire Protection Association conference. First time at Denver, what are these boxes with vents on everybody's roofs? <laughs> I'm from Florida. We have humidity. That would never get, you could never get away with that in Florida. Oh, well, yeah, we use swamp coolers. I'm like, what's a swamp cooler? Well, we use evaporated cooling. And it's pretty effective. Anybody building a house today with swamp coolers? Why? It's getting too hot. They're losing the effectiveness. Saw the same thing in California. We used to have a coastal zone. I'm on a board of a major utility out there. We used to have a coastal zone that didn't require air conditioning. That zone has shrunk. Texas right now. Just be glad you're not in a deregulated, free-for-all, no regulations, laissez-faire. The business sector knows what they're doing. No heavy hand of government. They're up to $800 a megawatt. They are paying some of the highest prices for electricity during this heat wave. There are going to be people that next month will not be able to pay electric bills or eat. That's the world we're in. What can we do about it? That's all gloom and doom. One, we've got to work on the carbon emissions. That battle cannot be sidetracked, delayed, or ignored. But we've already hit tipping points that we're not going back to the way it was. There is no happy day scenario in climate. The best we can do is hope it doesn't get any worse. Second thing is we need to examine 
how we are paying for disasters. Because the other problem we do is we price risk so low, we don't change behavior. And where that comes from is looking at it from the standpoint of building. You would think after the hurricanes across Florida, particularly this last one, Ida, that people would say, that's enough. No. They're building it at higher density with more people closer to the water. From the standpoint of government, it's like, okay, cool. They're not permanent residents. The cool thing about a permanent resident not, or not being a permanent resident, they don't need many services. They don't need schools. They could care less about public health. Uh, all they really want is the roads to be cleared in the wintertime. In our case, there's not much going on snow down there. Uh, public safety, good hospitals. Good hospital. Health care is important to them. And they like to see the sun. They like to enjoy the sunsets. They like, it's our dry season. That's what our humidities actually get down below 70%. And they're only part-time residents, but they pay full-time taxes. For governments, the perfect people to backfill into the whole of climate disasters. Or people that are financially secure, don't want to live there full-time, are there during the off-season off for hurricanes, there's season for them. They're relatively well-off. They spend a lot of money in the local economy. They pay a lot of taxes. So we're seeing rapid gentrification. That leads to another problem. Climate is dehousing people faster than we can build houses, especially affordable housing. You guys do not have an affordable housing here in Steamboat Springs. I've driven around and saw that. You've got plenty of trailers along creeks and stuff. They'll be just fine if they flood out. I'm sure people will pun those trailers right back there for the workforce, or maybe not. But think about the changes you've seen in Steamboat for those of you that have lived here for the last five to 10 years. Now do that in a year. That's how quickly things flip in disasters. Because people weren't insured or they were underinsured. People are coming in offering them a lot of money, developers, to put stuff back at higher density for short-term rentals, part-time residents. Local government's going, that's great. We get our tax base back without the headaches of the permanent residents. But where does the workforce go? We used to call this affordable housing. It's not, it's not for poor people anymore. It's for the workforce. It's for doctors, teachers, paramedics, firefighters, clerks, people driving a garbage truck. I mean, look at what they're already having to do in the service industry for ski resorts. And you're not the first town. Lake Charles, Louisiana, casinos are now putting in their reconstruction plans, housing for their workforce because Lake Charles got hit so many times that gentrified there was no place for the casino workers to live. Even Waffle House has been hit by this. After they got hit by a Category 5 hurricane in Mexico Beach, it's near Panama City, Florida, and the Panhandle. Waffle House got back. They had a couple of stores that were destroyed. They rebuilt them, got them back. Nowhere for their workers to work. Nowhere to live. So what happened was they started you know, telling me that they've got people driving an hour and a half to two hours to work their shift at a Waffle House. That's not a sustainable model. And so we need to think about housing for the workforce. We need to plan ahead because after disaster, it goes away. If you've been on any affordable housing 
authorities or if you dealt with housing and planning and all the issues, you know how complex it is. Well, imagine in a disaster, all that gets compressed down that decisions over the next three to six months will determine the outcome. You don't want to wait till the disaster. So you need to be thinking about how do we grow, preserve, and increase our workforce housing, both before and after disasters. And then we got to look at how we're building. Building codes work. How do I know this? Because the governor with the acronym who hated acronyms, also hated red tape, signed into law a lot of red tape called the Statewide Unified Building Code. Signed it into law in 2002, started taking effect and seeing the construction. We had this hurricane, Hurricane Charlie, Cat 4 hurricane, 150 plus mile an hour sustained winds, not quite a category five. We were flying over neighborhoods and you could tell when a house was built. Because they had a tarp, it was built before the code went to effect. Yeah. And after it, if it was built after this, the code went into effect, it probably didn't have a tarp. We went down a street in Pontagora on the water, big storm. President, it's called a street walk. So you got the president, the entourage, depressed. We're going through this neighborhood. It was built in the 70s, totaled till you get to the last house, closest to the water where the winds were the strongest. The president's looking at it like, and we were there like three days after the hurricane hit. He says, what well, gives? Because it looked like it was just built. The only thing wrong with it was the awnings were twisted off and the sod, this is how powerful the winds, the sod had been laid out, it blew so hard, it rolled sod up. <laughs> and the president looks to his brother, the governor says, hey, what gives? And the governor Bush says, that's building codes. Whether it's wildfires, using flame-resistant siding, getting rid of shingle-shake roofs, uh, plastic soffits, defensible space, quit building cul-de-sacs in the urban interface so the fire trucks can actually get in and out, putting in water supplies. We can build an engineer safely in the interface. We can build homes that don't get demolished every time there's a big windstorm. These are engineering. It costs more money, but it's incremental cost. But building codes, where we build and how we build, are two of the biggest factors, outcome, in these extreme events. And that's something we can change. So this all goes back to process. In the beginning, I said, look, you have to make a determination between are you focused on outcome or are you focused on process? In my world, when I tell people my, try to explain people what I do in emergency management, you know, it's, it's, it, they think of FEMA, they think of, they think of processes. Here's, here's what I do. This is what my career has been about. We build government for emergencies. We normalize those events. They handle it. That's good. My job is when that org chart won't work and you need to do something different. And that's a simple statement. That's one of the hardest things for bureaucracies to see is when they need to do something different because the natural tendency is to go back to that process and try to tweak it. Well, if we're gonna address climate impacts, we've gotta admit what we've been doing no longer works. It's no longer keeping up. The insurance model is breaking down. The response model is breaking down. The deployments are breaking down. The cost to you as a taxpayer is going astronomical. And we're still dumping more CO2 and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. And so 
I'm optimistic we can figure this out. There's a lot of new things. There's a lot of ways to look at this, but it comes back to the fundamental question. Are we going to keep doing what we've been doing and hope it gets better? Or we do recognize we're at that tipping point. We need to do things fundamentally different. And from the standpoint of disasters, is a whole era of policy that we have yet to get sustained conversations on. What we tend to get back to is who's paying for what? Why they didn't get that declaration? Why that wasn't eligible? Well, there's some guy sitting on a roof in, um, on his garage in South Florida because FEMA says he can't rebuild it the way he wanted to. Uh, and he's arguing with FEMA by sitting on his roof. I'm like, well, first of all, they're not even FEMA's rules. They're the local rules. Although the local government said they're FEMA rules because they had to adopt them to be in the flood insurance program. But that's where we're at. We got people sitting on roofs complaining about not getting the assistance they wanted. Why are they getting that assistance? They didn't have insurance. They didn't have flood insurance. You're paying. That's got to change. So with that, I'm open and game to any questions you have left. Oh, that was, that was wonderful. Thank you very much for sharing your expertise and observations with us. Um, I have a number of questions from the audience. Uh, they may not have the same amount of, of uh, humor that some of your observations had, but uh, again, thank you for making uh, us look at such a serious topic in a, in a way that doesn't depress us too much here. Okay. And so one, one question is, how, how do you view increased federal and, and state interest and having more authority in local land use policies, such as zoning and building codes. I think you alluded to that uh, a few well, minutes ago. Well, I, I look at it this way. Uh, left to their own devices, again, I'm, I'm very much always, I want to know why. People can say what happens. That's easy. Why does it happen? Yeah. Why do local governments allow development that doesn't always make sense? Why do developers? Because it's all transactional. It's, you know, if you think about it from your financial institutions to your state and everybody, they make money on transactions. What you pay in annual taxes don't even touch what you're paying in fees when you're buying or selling a home, getting permits, all that stuff. So it's transactional. So there's not a real penalty. So the tendency has been uh, for states to step up the game. However, that's counterintuitive because if a developer has to make investments and buy local politicians across all the communities versus buying a state legislature, which is most efficient? <laughs> so why do you think you constantly see in states that I'm familiar with a preemption of local government control over these decisions when they go with more stringent requirements? The developers will either go, all right, I can vote that crew out and get a crew that will back off, or I go to the state legislature and buy me enough legislatures to get them to preempt it, and then I'll get them to do a standard that will highlight how we're working as a partnership to alleviate these risks that doesn't really affect my business model. That, it may be very cynical, but that's what happens. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, okay. 
Craig, what, what's the best role for non-governmental entities such as foundations, Red Cross, and private citizens in recovery efforts? Focus on the uninsured, low-income, uh, the marginalized. FEMA, and again, it was is not really a reflection of the intent, but the outcome is FEMA's programs are best suited to middle class, educated uh, people with resources that can navigate the bureaucracy, apply for the assistance. Um, the homeless, the undocumented, uh, the non-English speakers, uh, poverty, again, FEMA has a lot of ability in these programs to do a lot of good, but it doesn't have the ability to underlying, to deal with the underlying issues. And so since those are so much compounded in disasters and understanding that FEMA isn't built to do that, people yell at FEMA all they want to, that's not what Congress funded. I, I think that, and, and my partnership when I worked with Red Cross and everybody else was, I'll take care of the people that our programs can take care of and you can take care of the programs that don't, and we need to coordinate so we're not duplicating our efforts. But I would say your marginalized communities, your undocumented communities. We cannot give any financial assistance to undocumented uh, residents in disasters. That's, that's law. But it doesn't take away the need. So I, I really think it's that partnership between what can government do and then who is not being addressed. And that's the communities I would focus on. Mm -hmm. What role does FEMA have with disasters in tribal areas? Up until uh, Superstorm Sandy, so this, this law was passed in 2013, tribal, federally recognized tribal governments had to go through their states to get assistance from the federal government. Remember I said only a governor can ask for assistance? Well, the way it's written in the Stafford Act up until 2013, the governors of states the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico, and the territories. So the governors of Guam, CMNI, BI, all that, they could ask for a declaration. Federally recognized tribes, however, had to go through their states. And if you've ever dealt with tribal governments, this is a huge sovereignty issue because it meant that they would have to go underneath state administrative control, which in a lot of cases, uh, they refused. And in some cases, like the Navajo, they're in four states. Which state do they pick? You know, if one state, and we've had this, where we had tribes that are in multiple states, only one state got declared, and the tribe was hit. The others, so um, we, this is, this is one, that, just, what are you really proud of at FEMA, and everybody talks about responses. We got the wall changed, and everybody said you'd never get it done. And everybody told us we shouldn't ask for it, and they made it very clear they didn't want us to ask for it. And I, man, what the hell, we're gonna ask for it. Um, I had to go to Senator Collins, I had to go to Senator Schumer, uh, because it was his bill. Uh, Mary Landry, she was still the, uh, she was head of, of, of Senate Homeland. I made my case, we changed the law. So in 2013, the law got changed where tribal governments are now in the same level of states, territories, and the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico, and the chief executive of federally recognized tribes. So FEMA was now given the ability to directly assist. and. The tribes have self-determination. They can choose to come to FEMA directly or they can go through their state. So the Eastern Band of the Cherokee Nation in North Carolina, first time that came out, they said, we're gonna run our own disaster. Afterwards, they said, we're gonna let the state handle that for us. <laughs> yeah. 
it's a lot of paperwork. Mm -hmm. Uh, in, the, in the light area, given the ever-increasing number of declared disasters from, uh, say, 100 to 200 in the last 10 years, should FEMA have independent cabinet-level status? Eh. <laughs> Do you want to sit in first class or third class on the Titanic? <laughs> no. Okay. No. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I got asked in my Senate confirmation, should FEMA be part of, of Homeland Security? I had said before that I said they should never have been put in there. But once they were put in there, I'm like, they got too much stuff going on. We were cleaning up and recovering from the Katrina fiasco. We had over 5,000 families still living in travel trailers when I came into office. So whether we were in DHS or not was kind of like not a priority. And what it really comes down to, and this is true all over, is the relationship between the president and the FEMA administrator. So you can make FEMA a cabinet member. I got news for you. In the Obama administration, there were cabinet members except for official photographs and the grid and grab line photographs. They never talked to the president. That's what cabinet affairs does. So just because you report to the president doesn't mean you talk to the president. In my case, he called me up. You know, it's, it's, this is these surreal moments. I would, I would go back home from Gainesville and do normal stuff like mow my grass and stuff like that. I get a phone call. Normally you get a phone call from, you've seen the movies. Uh, this is the White House, stand by for the president. So you at least have time to compose yourself. Well, apparently they were having trouble getting hold of me. A derecho had hit, he had a couple of governors calling him up. He said, I need to talk to Fugate. Okay, we're getting hold. Well, they couldn't make the call work. And, and so the president said, well, just give me his number. Phone rings, I let go of the thing, the motor stops, I say, hey, it's Craig. Hey, Craig, it's Barack. <laughs> yes, sir? <laughs> I'm hot, sweaty, shorts, t-shirts, it's summertime. <laughs> he said, that, you know, I've talked to the governor of Ohio and all this stuff, and it's just a ratio. He says, and I'm like, yeah, I know, our regional administrator's talking to their state director, we're good, and everything. Well, the governor seems to be, could you call the governor and let him know that all this is going on? Because he's called me, and he's not sure what his next steps are and everything. I said, yes, sir, I'll call him, no problem. Okay, good. Hung up. I get a call five minutes later from the White House uh, situation room. Did he call you? I'm like, yeah. Why didn't you guys warn me? We didn't know. He asked for your number. We didn't think he was dialing you. <laughs> yeah. Guess who I reported to in the org chart? Mm -hmm. Secretary of Homeland Security. Mm -hmm. Doesn't really matter if you're in first class or third class. Mm -hmm. If the ship's going down, <laughs> who are you going to call? Okay. Okay, great. What, what measures are used in the disaster declaration process and what improvements are needed? It's primarily financial because it's, it's easy and everybody says it doesn't work and it shouldn't be used and it's very uh, subjective, but nobody can come up with something better. Uh, there are two types of assistance in disasters. There's a lot of different sub-variants, but the two main ones. One's called public assistance, which is not the public. That's government and eligible nonprofits. And then there's individual and family assistance. Public assistance, again, remember I said it's always based upon the uninsured losses, not total damages. It's based on a per capita, a number. I think it's up to $1.50 or something per capita for your state population based upon your last census data. So whatever the population in Colorado was at the last census, multiply by $150, uh, $1.5 
of uninsured costs. That would be like, remember, it's not your straight time, it's your overtime. It's hiring contractors to pick up debris. It's calling out the National Guard, which isn't budgeted. It's bringing in mutual aid from other states. It's buying commodities. Uh, and then most government buildings are what we call self-insured, which as far as FEMA is concerned is basically no insurance. It's just going to get transferred to the federal taxpayer. So schools, hospitals, whatever, it's not insured. So you got to get to that threshold. It is very arbitrary, and it's very painful in big states. So like upper state New York can get hammered and they'll never get to that threshold because the population of the East Coast. California has a lot of rural counties that can be totally flat. They'll never get declared. I got yelled at by the senators of Virginia because North Carolina got declared for a tornado that hit both states, did comparable damages in both states. And I'm having to explain to the U.S. Senator, uh, sir, you have more people in your state. What that's got to do with anything? Uh, you told us to base this on the capability of states, and so we've been using their population and a number factor to kind of use that. So it doesn't work where you get these really intense disasters. But again, remember, FEMA makes recommendations. The president can declare whatever he wants to declare. Um, individual assistance is even crazier because it's, it's based upon numbers, but Congress says you can't base it upon numbers. So the bureaucracy looks at all these different factors. It's like writing war and peace. <laughs> How old were people? What was the trauma? What's the income levels? What's the unemployment rate? What's the high school graduate rate? What can we show that this was impacting the ability of the state and these people to recover? And again, it always comes back to what was the insured value? I had Jim Cantor. You ever see the guy on? I know Jim. Jim. We're at a conference, and he's basically accosting me because we didn't declare a tornado in some Midwest state. And there was deaths. A couple hundred homes were destroyed. Really bad. He'd gone there. You know, Weather Channel's going to be there. They're going to show you how bad it is from one direction. And um, why, 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 why did you turn your back on those people? I said, Jim, we didn't turn our back on anybody. Well, why didn't you help them? I'm like, Jim, this was an affluent community, and it was about 90% to 95% insured. There was no unmet needs for the federal taxpayer. The insurance companies were taking care of it. There wasn't enough cost to local governments to exceed their budgets. He's like, oh. <laughs> okay. I think maybe one, uh, one last question here. What uh, states are best prepared for disaster? <laughs> and that's... Uh, well, which one of your kids do you love the most? <laughs> the states that have the highest frequency of disasters get better by sheer repetition. States that fail miserably in disasters, if they learn the lessons, become models. Three such states, and they're not three states you would typically think of. Florida after Hurricane Andrew. As much as we blame the federal government, uh, Governor Charles, the late Governor Charles, realized that we failed our citizens and rebuilt the program, brought in new leadership, uh, changed the laws, did a lot of stuff to rebuild our programs. State of Louisiana did a major rebuild. They're now one of the more comparable states or confident state uh, when they respond. So they've been hit with a lot of hurricanes. You don't see the news coming out of there how messed up the response is. Uh, the current governor, Governor uh, John Bell Edwards, he doesn't like to go by Edwards because the previous Governor Edwards was, you know, put in prison. 
Uh, but he, he was running so many disasters, and he was doing such a great job. I said, sir, you need to brief incoming governors. The National Governor Association has orientation for new governors. And so that's a state that their current leadership, of course, he's termed out. But from Governor Jindal, Republican, to Governor Edwards, a Democrat, Louisiana has built a strong program. And then the third one, nobody would think of, and that's Connecticut. Connecticut got hit in Hurricane Irene in 2011. And you can Google their response. And the governor was very clear. He wasn't happy. He put together a commission, everything from power outages to response. What people don't know is on a per capita basis, Connecticut got hit just as hard in Superstorm Sandy as New York and New Jersey. Did you hear anything about Connecticut? Why? Because they were running their response and doing their job. And all we really had to do at FEMA was pump money and resources into that response. So it, there, are, there, are, there are great programs out there. There are programs that sometimes I think are based upon the personalities. Um, there's a lot of states that their first big disaster will be their first big disaster, and it probably won't go well mm -hmm. because it's, it's just hard to build it. But um, it's like picking out, you know, I worked with all these folks. That was my job to know. I divided my states into three things. This is kind of a football analogy. I'm from the Southeast Conference. Um, <laughs> go Gators. But it's like this. Oh, yeah. wow. okay. I did that to Governor Jindal. He introduced me on stage. I started doing this, my intergovernmental affairs. And this is when I was FEMA administrator. My intergovernmental affairs goes, what the blank is the administrator doing to the governor? He's doing a gator chomp. But I divided my states into three groups. There were the states that I knew personally, the directors. And quite honestly, I would tell my team, whatever they're asking, send them. Don't question, don't debate, don't doubt. I trust them. We just need to stay ahead of their needs. They got it. I had other states that they're going to need some more. They don't have the staff. They don't have the depth. I don't, need to, I don't need to do a lot. I just need to get them more people in their EOC to support that response. And then my third category were the ones I'm like, we're going to have to coach them up. Because they ain't ever seen this before. And remember I said we try to scale up and think we can handle little stuff and scale up and it don't work that way? And so I would tell, we would send in, we send in a federal coordinating officer appointed by the president when the president declares a disaster. They're FEMA staff. They're a very competent team. I would tell my federal coordinating officers, your job is not to be in front of the microphone or in front of the government. It's to make the governor and the state director look good. Mm -hmm. And if we're going to have disagreements, we have family fights, we keep it internal. But our job is to make them successful, not tell everybody how great FEMA is. And so I had those states that it could go one of two ways. Sometimes it went really, really well. Um, they had the instinct. They, they wanted to do a good job. They just needed, to, they needed coaching. And then I had some that were, quite frankly, uh, I had governors coming to me and says, I think I need to fire my guy. And I'm like, yes, sir. <laughs> yeah. No debate. Okay, great. Well, I'd like to thank you very much for your talk today. Uh, thank you for listening to Seminars at Steamboat. We'd like to thank KUNC for hosting our podcast. Support for seminars comes from the generous support of individuals and organizations in our community. For more information about our organization or to view the video recording of this or any of our previous seminars, please visit seminarsatsteamboat.org.